0: This week on Wealth Track, part two of our exclusive annual outlook with Wall Street's number one ranked economist Ed Hyman and noted global value investor Matthew McLennan. The state of the world's economy and markets is next on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. Hello, and welcome to our annual Global Economic Outlook edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. Do you remember the award winning book, This Time Is Different? Eight Centuries of Financial Folly by economists Carmen Reinhardt and Kenneth Rogoff. Its analysis of centuries of financial crises caused a huge stir when it was published in 2009 because it warned about the likely prospect of a decade of subpar growth after a financial crisis like the one the U.S. and the rest of the developed world suffered in 2008. Well, that decade is now past, and it appears that the era of slower-than-normal growth might be behind us, too. At least that is the thesis of one of this week's guests. Ed Hyman and his Evercore ISI research team have been tracking data almost daily, indicating that synchronized global growth is accelerating, from a pickup in global-leading economic indicators to surging small business optimism in the U.S., to a jump in real manufacturing orders in Germany, to accelerating real GDP growth in Japan and soaring bank deposits in China. Are we entering a new decade of higher global economic expansion? Well, joining us with his annual exclusive television interview on the state of the world economy is Ed Hyman, the founder and chairman of Evercore ISI and the record holder for being voted the number one economist on Wall Street for an incredible 37 years in the Institutional Investors Survey of Professional Investors because of his must-read, brief, and easily understood daily reports on trends in global economies and markets. And joining Ed for the second year in a row is Matthew McLennan, another WealthTrack regular over the years. McLennan heads up the global value team at First Eagle Investment Management, where he is also portfolio manager for several funds, including the flagship First Eagle Global Fund, which he took over from legendary value manager Jean-Marie Eveillard a decade ago. Well, McLennan is a worthy successor. The Global Fund has been a top performer among world allocation funds for years and is known for its superior risk-adjusted returns. I began the discussion by asking Hyman why we are seeing growth accelerating globally.
1: First, maybe it's just serendipity. You know, sometimes things are not correlated, and sometimes they are. And at the moment, uh, it looks like they are. And uh, any casual examination of the news, the uh, uh, German employment number was the lowest in a decade, the unemployment rate. And that repeats over and over. Uh, But you're asking a question, why? Mm -hmm. And you have, I think, uh, something for us all to consider. Mm -hmm. You have unusually stimulative monetary policies. So in Europe, where the economies are definitely doing better now, uh, they have the policy rate at zero and is expected by our policy team to remain at zero all of this year. Wow. At zero. And their bond yields are less than 50 basis points for Germany. And uh, the economy, I was there maybe six months ago, it's booming. Not just doing pretty well, but it's booming. And that's because you've been feeding it uh, this very easy monetary policy for a long time. And we've been a little lucky that the geopolitical mm-hmm. hasn't really mm-hmm. done anything too crazy
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, lately. And then in, uh, in Japan, uh, it's doing better, a little bit for the same reasons, but uh, the easy monetary policy. But they have a lot of corporate cash, and uh, there's a, a sense that they're putting it to work more effic- efficiently than they've been doing in the past. And from what I can tell, China is still doing uh, okay. Mm -hmm. That's a a more difficult Mm -hmm. one. But they had – I glance at the China Daily every morning to see if something jumps out at me. And something jumped out at me this morning. So in 2018, uh, they are building in China 2,500 miles of railroad. That would be equal to one transatlantic (laughs) U.S. railroad. And they're spending – Uh, about $2 billion.
0: And they're doing that this year?
1: 2018. That's the problem. They can do it. (laughs) They can do it. So uh, you have uh, that. And then in the U.S., that's some fiscal stimulus Mm -hmm. in uh, China. And then the U.S. uh, looks like we've reached maybe some point of acceleration. Even though our tree is old by rings, Uh, some of the parts of the tree look young. Some of the rings look like, oh, your housing starts are only a, a little over a million, or inflation is still low, or Fed funds are still one and a half, uh,
0: 2%. So there's still room to grow.
1: Those, are, those are, you look at a tree economy. and you say, this tree should be 1,000 years old.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You say, well, it's, it's actually only 50 uh, in tree terms. And so the U.S., and now we have the tax cuts coming on and deregulation, and who knows? Uh, but again, if I could wish, I would have just more two percent growth, Right. because I think it's slowly making America great. Uh, but that's not that's not what we that's not the deck we have. We have somebody that wants to have four percent growth, and so it looks like the the global economy, as almost everybody I see, yeah. says it's it's doing better.
0: You know, Matt, you look at imbalances and distortions in global markets. And I, I hear 50 basis points for, uh, for the you know, ECB or whatever, and, uh, and we're nine years into an economic recovery, and the economies are growing, and why aren't they raising rates to reflect a growing economy? And this has got to be creating all sorts of distortions that you're looking at, right?
2: Well, well gold was rejected as money because it was seen as too much tough love. Um, And, you know, by comparison, our um, current monetary architecture, uh, where we have inflation targeting and and, um, free printing presses, as it were, is the equivalent of being an indulgent parent. And, you know, you cushion every crisis and you're going to build asymmetric imbalances over time. And that's exactly what's happened here is every time we've had a crisis, uh, easy money has come to the rescue. Um, The second order consequence of that is that the stock of debt has gone up not just in the US but but globally and um, you know and and that feeds a self-reinforcing process of low interest rates because the economy can no longer handle normal interest rates if interest rates go up a few percent that's much more devastating for an economy with debt to gdp of 250% than 150% and so you know you you end up getting a, a self-reinforcing process of easy money producing structurally uh, low real interest rates because that's what's needed to keep uh, the supply of money growing uh, and, and your inflation targets met. And so we, we've backed ourselves into a policy corner. And it's, it's very well displayed, not just in, in, in the EU where you've got 50 basis point interest rates, but in Japan, where they target the yield curve at 0% a decade out. Unemployment rates are low, not just in the US, but Ed mentioned in Germany, you've hit right. decade lows as well. You're, you're at a low in China. Uh, you've got a low unemployment rate in Japan. Thanks. So unemployment rates are low globally and probably on a weighted basis close to or below the 2007 troughs. And so this is a time where we'd expect uh, monetary conditions to tighten. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that the U.S. rate of money supply growth is um, is low relative to the last five, seven years. China's at a two-decade low. And the EU and and the European central banks will start to taper um, their asset purchases going forward, and so monetary conditions, which have been so supportive, may become less supportive.
0: There, there's a, a, another phenomenon at work, which Ed has covered in his research, and that's that you know the famous Reinhardt and Rogoff book, "This Time Is Different," and you mentioned uh, in some research that that you know maybe the ten years of subpar growth are over, and that we could be at the beginning of a new decade of of better growth, of this, you know, synchronized global growth accelerating that you've written about?
1: So all I can do is say, let's watch it. So they wrote this book in 2008. Right. Before it was right to write it. It said we've studied all financial crises. And on average, it takes a decade to get over it. Yes. On, on average. The financial crisis started in the summer of 07. So we've had our decade. Yes. So now I'm looking around to see, are there things that happen that people say, oh, I feel different now. I'm, I've, I'm not going to get killed by 08, 09 again. And so things like faster growth, if you have faster growth, productivity will pick up. And getting back to our discussion about interest rates, if interest rates go up, people will say, oh, this is now back to normal. even if it's the right diagnosis, but they would say, oh, with the funds rate of three, this feels like more familiar territory than I've seen before. The tax cuts would be a new uh, thing. So there are a lot of things that uh, I've made a list now, maybe 20 things uh, where people say, first time in a decade. Mm -hmm. Like Vietnam just had the fastest GDP in a decade. House prices just went up. To the highest level in a decade. So we'll see if uh, in the next year if people start to feel a little more optimistic. Mm -hmm. I would just add a cautionary word that I
2: think a lot of the improvements that happened after a decade in many economies were because there was deleveraging in those economies and often foreign exchange weakness uh, which improved the competitiveness of of those economies that were going through a deleveraging. The problem we have today is that the, the debt issues are global in nature They're Mm -hmm. not local in nature, and we actually haven't seen a deleveraging at the global level. We've just seen the debt move from the household and corporate sector to the sovereign sector. To the governments, uh, right. uh, To the government, and and we've seen an enormous leveraging of the Chinese economy, the world's second largest economy, and the largest contributor to global uh, growth. And so my concern a little bit, uh, with that benign perspective, is that we actually haven't seen the adjustment in global balance sheets. And so we're not really at a, a blank slate starting point. And, and secondly, asset prices are already high. Mm-hmm. And, and thirdly, we're moving into uncharted political uh, territory
0: in, globally.
2: globally. And, and so you I mean, know, if, we, if, if, if we went when, back when in time- When you say
0: uncharted political territory, you mean the, the populism well, well, a and, Trump Just or... the structural
2: change in the world economy. So if we went back in time 20 years ago, Chinese fixed capital investment and money supply expressed in U.S. dollar terms was a fraction of the U.S. It's now a multiple. Mm-hmm. And with that, we've seen a pickup in Chinese military expenditure. The Chinese military expenditure was less than Japan 20-odd years ago. It's much larger than Japan now. In fact, it's more than the EU. And the Chinese have a much more assertive um, foreign policy yes. agenda, the Belt and Road Initiative, and... Um, with maritime passages, you know, from China through the, um, the Middle East and um, these sort of rail projects extending beyond their borders right. into Eurasia. Um, there are overt geopolitical developments going on and a shift in economic relativities um, that we haven't seen globally since before World War One. And uh, I, I think it's, it's just worth stepping back from the, this moment of, of optimism to reflect on the fact that we haven't seen a balance sheet adjustment and that the geopolitical state of the world is as close to a state as state of nature that I can remember, you know, in the last generation. And, and so I think those, those are kind of balancing considerations.
0: Looking back over, like, the last 20 years, I mean, how, you know, how dangerous or how high risk is this for investors, this current environment?
2: I would just make the uh, observation that investing is all about identification of asymmetries between Mm -hmm. price and prospects. Mm -hmm. And right now, markets do not perceive much in the way of risk. Credit spreads are tight, implied volatility is low, equity multiples are high. Whether or not we have more risk going forward in the next five to ten years than we had in the last five to ten years is a subjective assessment. I personally feel that the risks are higher because debt levels are higher, geopolitics are more complicated, and we're closer to the peak of the cycle rather than the trough of the cycle. Yet markets are not reflecting um, that as a a risky cocktail. Uh, And and so that worries me. It's the asymmetry between what the markets are perceiving uh, and what I think is the exposures um, that are present today in the world economy.
0: In the meantime, though, we, most of us have to invest for our retirement mm-hmm. and we want returns and we want income. And so, what's the plan matter? Or- it's
2: interesting. You-, you know, we, we live in a world of monetary creation. Um, and so, seeking a margin of safety from a macro standpoint is, is almost trying to, uh, about trying to identify investments that have a return character that's greater than that money supply growth rate. Uh, you can imagine if you owned a stock that had a 2% dividend yield, but they were expanding their shares outstanding 5% a year, you'd say that's a raw deal. Well, that's most of the world's government bond market. You're getting low yields relative to money supply growth. You're, you're being diluted in terms of your structural purchasing power. So for us, um, to find a margin of safety, we do have to own businesses. You know, we do have to seek out businesses that we think are priced uh, soundly, um, that can grow in line with nominal activity. We're not looking for the rapid growers. We're looking for businesses that uh, demonstrate persistence, but buying them at points in time where they have attractive free cash flow yields. It's that combination of free cash flow yield and sustainable growth that, that helps preserve our purchasing power relative to that growing money supply. But it's also having a potential hedge um, in something that can't be printed, and and thus the discussion that we've had in the past about gold. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Over time, gold has preserved its purchasing power relative to nominal activity, uh, and it's out of favor right now. And so I think in this environment, you have to seek a margin of safety through the ownership of real assets, uh, because nominal assets are not priced um, to uh, immunize you against money supply growth, except for that percentage of your portfolio, which is in cash. It Mm -hmm. has a a low short-term return, um, but if you are disciplined about redeploying that cash at moments where the market's giving you opportunities, the -the through-the-cycle return on that can be quite attractive. And so it's having a mindset. That says we recognize the imperfection of the system and we're going to invest in a way um, with discipline um, that helps uh, give us a margin of safety relative to that environment.
0: What about gold stocks? I know you invest in gold bullion, but you also invest in gold stocks. So, wh- what role do gold stocks play?
2: We own primarily uh, bullion as our potential hedge. Uh, But if we're willing to hold the gold in a vault, it's our view that we should be willing to own gold in the dirt, if you will, through the miners, if we can buy that gold uh, with a margin of safety in price.
0: And are you seeing any in gold stocks now? And if so, which ones?
2: I I would say that the gold stocks... um, are rationally priced to somewhat undervalued at the moment relative right. to physical bullion. Um, you know, we like gold miners that are well-positioned on the cost curve. And in fact, we like some of the royalty companies. Um, and one that's been out of favor the last few years is Wheaton Precious Metals. Um, and we have an investment there. It's a Canadian company. And um, they, they have a, a long-term track record of uh, not operating gold mines, but having royalties and streaming arrangements on gold mines. Uh, it's a business that... Um, has much more optionality. You know, if if the gold miner that you ha- mine that you have royalty on gets further developed, you don't have to put the capital up, uh, but you still have the royalty. And so those can be very interesting business models if you buy them at the right uh,
0: point in time. Ed, liquidity. One of the things that you've mentioned in some research reports is a phrase from Bitcoin to Da Vinci, and <laughs> and you've mentioned oh, we've- that. That that Bitcoin is a canary, but of a good kind. It's a signal of something. What does it represent? Well, you know,
1: it's everywhere. Bitcoin is... Global. And discussed like a main Everywhere. It is. And uh, so we talked earlier about uh, from fear to greed. And I've seen greed for the first time, really, since the tech bubble. Mm -hmm. With uh, Bitcoin. With Bitcoin. And other... Affiliated crypto From my point of view, Bitcoin is a manifestation of the incredible amount of liquidity in the system and the very low interest rates. And then you have Da Vinci, and you have the stock market going crazy, and you have bond prices way up and bond yields way down. So I see the system just awash with liquidity. And I I can tell that my Achilles heel is that I'm assuming that this Super Bowl will end the way the previous ones did. The risk is the debt level in the system. But uh, every cycle has ended with an inverted yield curve, you say, where the, the, bo- the policy rate goes up pretty right, high.
0: Right, where the short rates, interest rates are higher than long, and then the, than 10-year rates. And then
1: something instance. bad happens. Could be geopolitical or economic accident or China, the bond yield comes down, uh, and it's over. You go into a recession or a depression. Uh, So I'm still (laughs) driving along that road, uh, waiting for the yield curve uh, to first get higher and then start to invert. One one point
2: there, though, it's interesting when you have overlevered economies. Sometimes they can't handle interest rates that we would think of as, as normal. Mm-hmm. And Japan's an interesting economy. You know, over the last generation, interest rates were essentially zero, yet they still had cycles. And those cycles were driven by other factors, uh, shocks in oil prices, um, large exchange rate movements, um, attempts to tighten fiscal policy. So it may mm-hmm. be that an inversion of the yield curve is what ends this bull market, but it may be in an overlevered world that interest rates don't get as high as we're accustomed to.
0: One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, Ed Hyman, thinking in the international sphere, what do you think we should all own some of? In the
1: international sphere, uh, I think Japan uh, is the best place to take Mm -hmm. a look. Uh, Like, no market is uniform, so the financial stocks are inexpensive. uh, So I, I like Japan outside the U.S., Right, Uh, I've I've probably been to Japan 50 times, but I don't remember Japan ever looking this possibly better. Uh, For example, there's been a significant increase in immigration. Really? Very unusual. Very unusual. Uh, And they still tell me, oh, no, we won't have any immigration. But the figures keep going up and up and up and up.
0: Because they need workers. In in
1: order to to grow, they have to have. Right, right. But they've been... Quite xenophobic yes. about that so far. Uh, that'd be my favorite uh, right. foreign picture. And uh, let me just sort of build on what
2: Eva said about Japan as, as an interesting place because the yen, ironically, has been a defensive currency because interest rates are already zero in Japan. Um, whenever there's an, a risk episode in world markets, interest rates come down in the developed world, but they're already at zero in Japan. And so the interest rate differentials narrow in favor of Japan. And the currency strengthens. Also, they're a net importer of commodities. So uh, when you get a bad uh, moment of economic activity, it's good for the terms of trade in Japan. And so the yen is somewhat of a defensive currency. Even though everyone's worried about it going down, um, it's behaved in a very defensive way. And there are some businesses within Japan that are quite defensive in nature. Companies like KDDI, for example, leading um, mobile and fixed-line operator, 6 7% free cash flow yield, um, growing at mid-single digits. Or companies like Seicom in commercial alarms, sixty percent market share with a five percent plus free cash flow yield. You don't have to buy a JGB with a zero percent yield. You can buy a sound business with a five, six, seven percent free cash flow yield uh, in a defensive region to create some anchor in your portfolios overseas.
1: Yeah, I know, Matt. You, you've been involved with a number of Japanese companies for some some time.
2: I would agree with what you said that uh, I, I, th- I think that comp- business confidence has has definitely improved in Japan. I think. Um, capital allocations improve. We've seen dividend payout ratios um, move up markedly. I remember the days where you were lucky to get a 10% dividend payout ratio in Japan. We have companies now in Japan that are distributing 80% of their earnings, buying back stock, paying dividends. Wow. That's a big change. Right. Um, You know, we we have thoughtful conversations with Japanese management teams uh, about uh, their capital uh, plans. And so I think that is a big change uh, versus 15 or 20 years ago. Net-net, though, like the rest of the world, valuations have gone up some. We, we've been a net seller the last couple of years of some of the names that we've loved in Japan mm-hmm. and mentioned on the show in the past, um, but we still find some sound opportunities in Japan.
0: We will leave it there. So great to have you both here. And Ed Hyman, as always, for our annual outlook, we really appreciate it. My pleasure. Exclusively on WealthTrack. Thanks yeah. so much. And Matt McLennan for joining us once again this time of year. Thanks so much for being with us on Thank WealthTrack. Thank Thank you. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is be prepared psychologically and financially for a correction in the financial markets. Prices of the vast majority of stocks and bonds around the world are near historic highs. Market volatility has been extraordinarily low, investor confidence is rising. Evidence of market euphoria is emerging in assets like Bitcoin and some tech stocks, and central bank policies are tightening around the world. As Hyman warned, bull markets end by being shot by the Fed. The Federal Reserve has fired a few tightening rounds. There are more to come. Other central banks are preparing theirs. At some point, the markets will react. Well, next week on Wealth Track, we have a rare treat. Legendary investor Bill Miller will discuss the rationale behind some of his most controversial holdings, including Amazon and Bitcoin. You won't want to miss it. In the meantime, in the extra feature on our website, Matthew McLennan recommended two Food for Thought economic books and one sheer pleasure volume for us to consider. We look forward to hearing your thoughts on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.